Game Cool Books, Episode 77, The Word Alone. We're in Chapter 36, The Broken Arrow. The epigraph this time comes from Andrew Marvell in his poem, The Definition of Love. Lines quoted here come in the third stanza. But fate does iron wedges drive and always crowds itself betwixt. And the poem seems to be telling us not what love is, but the definition in the sense of its limitations. Um, fate is personified here, becomes a female by the next stanza, for fate does, uh, with jealous eye, does see two perfect loves, nor lets them close. Their union would her ruin be, and her tyrannic power depose. A tyrannic power very like the authority although the fate that we'll get in this actual chapter seems to not be uh, anthropomorphic or, or uh, personified in the same way. So, chapter opens with the two demons uh, moving through, and that's an echo of the verb phrase used in the very first sentence of the first book, uh, where Lyra and her demon move through. Um, the hall back at Jordan College. These two move through the village, cat-formed, come to the open door of Mary's hut, and in this way they're very like Father Gomez standing on the threshold there. They do not go in. Instead they turn and find Will and Lyra under the shelter tree with its corkscrew leaves which evoke a imagery of art and craftsmanship descending as a leaf curtain which has a strong uh, connection to the bower in uh, Paradise Lost. In this case, the uh, sleepers uh, are Lyra and Will, whereas at the start of the book it was, again, Lyra and Pan, her demon, and they're in each other's arms. So we see through that curtain of leaves for the first time, really, since the two have had their awakening um, but the relationship that's focused on this time is finally not Will and Lyra's, but that of their demons and them. The two demons need the life-giving warmth that their people provide. They, in turn, provide them with affection and care, cleaning Will's wound, moving the lock of hair from, Will, uh, from Lyra's face. It's unclear whether they're touching both of the children or only their own. Then someone appears behind them. They turn into wolves and turn quickly to find a woman outlined by the moon. Again, that symbol of change and in this case of radiance, a wisdom that takes Blake's uh, second or third sort of vision. Um, her voice makes no sound, and yet they can hear it clearly. This is a new power that witches seem capable of. Of course, it is Serafina Pecola. Um, they fly away so as not to wake any of the villagers or the sleeping Will and Lyra. And the birds that these two change into seem significant here, a nightingale, going back to the Keats poem, 
uh, and an owl, that bird of wisdom and the night. The place that they end up, of course, is significant as well. It's the Wheeltree Grove, um, high as a castle, and the open flowers there that drink in the dust. They sit among these, and Seraphina can see, for we see from her perspective, that the two demons will settle soon. They are curious about that, but she tells them not to uh, sweat it, to, to maintain the memory of this night clear in their minds. And this is a motif that will come back a number of times. Memory and its counterpart, imagination. She bids them listen to her witch lore, known only to the likes of witches and, well, Pan points out shamans as well are able to leave their people behind um, or leave their demons aside in this case. We'd seen Kaiser without Serafina Pekula, now we see her without him. And she says this is because the witches too had to undergo an ordeal of leaving their demons behind. Um, just as Will and Lyra left their demons on the shores of the world of the dead. So witches in a place that suffered some catastrophe long ago in the childhood of the world um, must leave their demons behind across a, uh, an uncertain amount of distance alone. But it does not sever them. Instead, it allows them to roam and bring back knowledge. So the interesting thing here is that Will and Lyra did this without knowing it. Of course, that was a significant part of the prophecy about the betrayal that Lyra would commit. Um, but now having done it, it seems they are permitted that knowledge, which was so important to be withheld from them before. It's also interesting that witches know what they're getting into all along, it seems. Um, although it's unclear exactly what form this ritual takes, it seems to be one which is spoken of and understood among the witches, even those who are not yet um, come of age. They, uh, in this way, are like the children of the Mulefa playing with the wheels, which they can't quite ride yet. And that significant phrase, the childhood of the, of the world, might refer to... Um, the point at which the world itself came of age, so to speak, uh, presumably in that fall or that first rebellion of the angels in which they intervened in human uh, evolution, as they described to Mary through the cave. Now, the uh, question is still hanging about what form these two demons will take, Will they be like witches, demons, and be birds? They, um, she thinks, will uh, uh, will have to help and guide their people towards wisdom. She says that is what demons are for, but she still does not quite answer their question. The name that she gives Will's demon is Kiryava, and she says soon you will see what it means. Uh, the curious reader can look it up uh, at this point, or wait a little bit. In Wikipedia's etymology page, uh, it describes this word as being um, 
an adjective that means multicolored or many colored or motley even, uh, like a jester's outfit. Um, the uh, connection here seems to be uh, both a linguistic one. Um, as we know, the Serafina's name comes from uh, a Finnish phone book or something like that. Um, but also a, uh, a kind of um, focus on, on words themselves, uh, which comes back a number of times in these couple of chapters. And it's here that we get the only real indication of what the demons have been doing this whole time. And even this is rather vague. They are uh, in despair over the fact that they will have to tell Will and Lyra what they've learned. And to put that off and try to distract Serafina, they begin to tell her the story of their travels. She too, and again we see this through her perspective as the listener, is sorrowful about what is going to happen when they are reunited with Will and Lyra, but she has to guide them as the wisest one there, so acting in a way as the demon to these demons. She asks them where they've been, they say they've gone through many windows, every one that they found, so acting a bit like Mary Malone, um, there they saw many things, they met an angel, um, although what they learned from her is not exactly clear uh, at this point. They saw the world of the Galavespians and saw how the big people there uh, oppress and try to destroy the little ones. They uh, tell this story in much the way that Lyra told stories uh, in the world of the dead. Um, these are presumably true, um, but they do it not out of uh, a wish to disclose information, but indeed as an as attempt to delay and put off the inevitable here. And that's an important function of storytelling, perhaps one that um, Pullman uh, surely uh, wants us to consider uh, along with its other functions that ability to um, process and indeed distract from suffering. Uh, so these two kind of goals in, in tension with one another. Um, but also here, they tell the story in tandem, it seems, and out of a love for each other's voice, which I think is an important aspect of storytelling, particularly oral storytelling, that it is not necessarily the singular activity that authorship seems to be for Pullman. Um, indeed, a kind of secretive activity for him. Um, but once the story is told aloud, it becomes uh, something that can be bounced back and forth between tellers, um, and in this case, ones that love one another. Um, now, the whisper of the leaves in the tree uh, seems to evoke those ghosts down in the world of the dead um, and remind us of, of those true stories that they need to carry with them. And we'll get a more explicit reminder of this shortly. Um, now, Serafina remembers how her Kaisa similarly stayed away after her sojourn through the desolate barrens, as she put it, that, that abominable 
wasteland um, in her world. Uh, the demons are staying away from their people to punish them, and she understands this, but she trusts that they will do what has to be done, that they will have to tell Will and Lyra what they've learned. And we take it probably from the angel herself. At this, Pan utters an owl cry, and we jump to the perspectives of little creatures all over the world of the Mulefa, hearing this terrible sound and feeling a new fear fall upon them. And she, uh, Serafina, is remembering here in her compassion the question that Ruta Scotti asked her about looking into Will's eyes because his demon now is similarly terrifying, giving off a ferocity like heat. Um, and in this way, she's actually a bit like Mrs. Coulter, uh, who had that same um, heat generating quality to her, especially when Lyra first met her, it seemed. Um, but it's reiterated that they will have to tell them. And in place of that rage uh, felt by Kiryava, a desolate sadness takes uh, hold. Serafina says that the ship is coming. The Egyptians are on it. She'll be there in another day or so uh, with it uh, to talk more. And they leave in the form of two doves, uh, which might be a reference to the, uh, the kind of peace that comes at the end of the flood uh, in the Noah story. Um, a variation, though, of course, because one of those uh, birds was, uh, was a raven, I think. Um, that uh, the last thing she says here is that she can see a little way ahead, and she thinks both demons will be able to climb so high. But they will not be birds, she thinks. Um, again, these witch-like powers keep uh, seeming to expand, or maybe we're just finally learning more of the extent of those powers. Um, and uh, she bids them again, take in and remember this night. She trusts they will make the best choice, um, but it's theirs to make. And that's very important, of course, um, particularly in the arc of uh, Will's development. Uh, he's pointed that out as well uh, to his father in their last conversation. Um, another which will be reiterated shortly. Um, and then one of those first powers that we ever learned about the witches having uh, of not being, um, not, not suffering from cold, uh, but feeling on their skin the breeze the starlight tingling, and the sifting of dust that she's never seen. So they can feel the dust, perhaps, even though they were not aware of it before these recent events. Now, we get another conversation, this time with Mary Malone, still from Serafina's perspective. She knows about Mary. She knows she's from Will's world, but knows nothing else. Um, and... I don't know where it is exactly she's learned this, but she has a power to wake the sleeper without startling her. And she prepares the spell, um, sits cross-legged with half-closed eyes, breathing in time with Mary. She begins to see in a half-vision the dreams that Mary is experiencing. Um, and this is like the way we saw Lyra's dreams or visions at the start of the book um, in a kind of half vision um, in between chapters. Now, Serafina knows how to resonate with her as if tuning a string. So the lodestone resonator 
which has dropped out of the story, is evoked here in a new way. Um, and this allows Serafina to step in among the dreams and speak to Mary the way that she did uh, the other day um, when Mary became aware of the, uh, of the opening to the world of the dead. The uh, waking here is uh, rather like the uh, important process of awakening Lyra at the start of the book, um, and also, of course, uh, metaphorically at least, related to the uh, very important awakening that Will and Lyra have just experienced. So uh, they're sort of wandering briefly, feeling this affection that we feel in dreams um, through a funny landscape of reed beds and electrical transformers, possibly some amalgam of images from Pullman's autobiography or from earlier works. Indeed, uh, Galatea again comes to mind here. But uh, she recognizes the witch on waking um, because she's seen her twice now in her dreams. And um, she's unclear at first if she is awake. And this is an important question again um, about the uh, the truth and falsity of the stories uh, that we tell ourselves. Now, Serafina says that she's done this because dream talk is hard to control and hard to remember. Um, she instead would prefer to walk in the moonlight, and Mary agrees to go with her. They pass by those all-concealing leaves, and uh, we see from Mary's perspective how um, she admires this being, um, Serafina's slender grace, uh, and the expression, uh, which holds a kind of hint of age uh, in terms of the wisdom she can perceive there. Um, now, we get a brief recap of the previous day where the children were looking for their demons, and then something else happened, and, and I hesitated even to call them children, but uh, they are... Uh, no longer quite uh, children um, because of that something else. Um, because of the uh, uh, encounter and the awakening that they had. Um, and it seems to be connected with, with looking for one's demon. Um, the discussion then turns to uh, Mary Malone's demon, which Serafina Pekela can see as a, uh, a bird of the mountains, she says. Uh, and she gives specifics. She can see it with her eyes half closed, and she could teach Mary to see him too. She's curious about how that would look, um, and whether they'll have enough time to do so is unclear at this point. Um, but at any rate, the meaning of this event is uh, important. It is not just the love that the two children, no longer children, feel for one another, but what it means for the flow of dust. Um, the witch has never seen dust. And this is part of the intrigue on her part about meeting Mary Malone, um, because of course Mary is the creator and possessor of the Amber Spyglass. But the intrigue on the part of the readers is still to find out what this knowledge is whose implications are too hard for Mary to uh, to parse at this point. Um, we still don't know what it is that the demons are going to tell their people. 
But anyway, when the witch sees the dust, she exclaims that it's beautiful, uh, just as Mrs. Coulter did um, down in the abyss. This um, ability to see dust seems very closely related to the ability to see demons, um, to know one's own demon, uh, to go and seek one's demon, uh, as Will and Lyra were doing, uh, and to um, become aware of the effect, uh, the connection there between that seeking and the flow of dust. Um, by looking at the sleepers, the witch perceives that they did this. They reversed the flow of dust because, again, they must be saturated with it. Um, it was yesterday, she says, if it was after midnight. And Mary Malone is unclear on chronology, just as we are. But she describes the dust flow like a great river, the Mississippi, uh, singled out here, um, with all its great weight of story and song. Um, but she says that with a single pebble, you could divert the flow of a great river if you started the water going one way instead of the other. Now, normally, such a process would take a long, long time. And this, of course, was instantaneous. And um, that, again, um, that question of time, that problem of time arises here, perhaps for the reader, um, just how this could have happened so suddenly. Um, but at any rate, it also reminds us a bit of maybe the reforging of the knife, that process which required such precise placement of stones uh, and airflow. Um, this was a way of seeing one another that suddenly came to their consciousness. And maybe that's the key here, um, that they become aware of one another in a new way um, and aware of themselves, that this powerfully attracted the dust to them and that the world's will be safe once again, Serafina uh, says, once the angels fill the great chasm, that abyss. Um, so again, she too has met an angel, and we can guess that it might be the same one as the demons met in their story. She says this angel was old and young together, forgetting that that's how she looks to other humans. Um, this is a kind of a funny moment, uh, an ironic moment here. Um, and the angel's name is Zephania. I can finally pronounce that correctly, I think, Zephania. Now it's Serafina Pecola's turn to tell someone what she heard from this angel. It's very much like what we heard about the struggle described by John Perry between the followers of wisdom and the forces of the kingdom, the authority who wanted to keep minds closed. There are many examples from each of their worlds. Uh, we don't go into them here. Um, but the analogy that we do get here is between wisdom and a spy and humble places of the world whispering uh, while the forces of the kingdom have their pomp at the courts. So we might think of the uh, kingdom of the bears here. We might think of the world of the dead again. Um, but also uh, think of those spies who were the first people that Lyra read anything about from the Alethiometer. Um, the 
kingdom will regroup, we're told. And though Asriel fought and defeated Metatron, bearing them both down into the abyss, uh, other leaders presumably will arise and marshal the forces of the old authority. As for Mrs. Coulter, when Mary asks about her, Seraphina takes her best, most perfectly balanced arrow and breaks it, hence the title of the chapter. And in doing so, she breaks her word as well, she says, because she swore that she would put that arrow through the neck of the woman who now she has forgiven because of her great sacrifice, uh, um, allowing the, uh, uh, the children, no longer children, to have their safety and thus to uh, reverse the, spread, uh, the, the flow of dust out of the worlds. Now, there is a hint here, perhaps, that Mrs. Coulter survived, or else why would there need to be such a uh, dramatic gesture of for forgiveness? Um, but uh, as for Lyra's questioning about this, we're told that Mary can wait until she asks. Maybe she won't, because after all, her symbol reader will tell her anything. But as we've seen before, it does have limits on what it will tell her, certain kinds of questions it won't answer. And as we'll see in the next chapter, that limit is going to uh, change greatly. So they fall into a companionable silence, and we get one more glimpse ahead. The uh, witch says that she will be her sister, um, but uh, Mary has to consider for the first time what she'll do next. She supposes she will belong in her own world, though she's the happiest in this that she's ever been. If so, then she will have a sister in another world, Seraphina says. Again, we get this reference to a day or two when they will have the voyage home, and then they will part forever. That said, they embrace, and the witch flies out of sight. The chapter closes, though, with a brief uh, visit to more scavengers, not the arctic fox and the cliff gas this time, but one of those giant lizards that we saw in the middle of the road sunning itself earlier has found the body of Father Gomez, which Will and Lyra did not see. Um, and by some ancient understanding with the Mulefa, they are entitled to any creature left dead after dark. So the lizard and its children feast. Um, the rifle brought by the priest is left there in the grass and slowly turns to rust. So we never do hear about the lodestone resonator that I recall. But uh, one by one, these uh, powerful, important, and significant objects are all being taken care of here. The next chapter is named not for a weapon, but for a place 
The Dunes, chapter 37, its epigraph. My soul do not seek eternal life, but exhaust the realm of the possible is the only one in the series that comes from Pindar. There were two from Marvell, um, a contemporary of Milton, whereas Pindar is a ancient Greek poet. And this comes from his Pythian odes, but it most likely, almost certainly comes via its use as an epigraph in a poem called the Graveyard by the Sea, or the Cemetery by the Sea in other translations uh, from uh, Valerie, the French poet, uh, and perhaps even more specifically from a reference in a song to that poem, a song by uh, Bresson, uh, and there is a, a recording of Pullman talking about this song and how it is related to his own youthful love affairs. Anyway, the uh, dunes also probably connote for Pullman the Welsh seaside where he spent a part of his youth. And uh, he writes about that landscape in The Broken Bridge, um, elsewhere he describes it as a love letter to the landscape, that entire novel. And in an essay called God and Dust in Demon Voices, Pullman speaks of moments of clarity, uh, wakefulness um, that he uh, shares in a way with Mary Malone. Um, so I really should have uh, noted that particular essay in the uh, commentary I did on the chapter There Is Now um, last time. But with that said, um, one of those moments of wakefulness Pullman describes uh, briefly as uh, taking place on a stormy day or night um, along the shore. And so perhaps that contributes to the important uh, setting here uh, of the dunes. This is the uh, day after Lyra and Will went looking for their demons and something else happened. They go out again by themselves, speaking little as if in a daze, as if having survived some happy accident. Um, they visit that grove where they shared the red fruit. Um, we're told that they talk and bathe and kiss um, in a trance of happiness. Their words confused in sound as well as sense, feeling as if they are melting with love. And that's all that we're told. Um, Pullman is consistently uh, vague about exactly what Will and Lyra's love consists in, but he says somewhere that uh, kissing and, and touching and holding hands uh, is about what he imagines them doing. And I think that most readers probably will be content with that. Uh, at most. The evening meal, the cool breeze, and then uh, seeking more cool air, they go out along the sea uh, to the dunes. So we have the scene set, and a very uh, notable set piece here of, of music. Um, we saw at the very end of the first book the importance of music there in the uh, reference uh, to the light 
of another world or the wind of another world, perhaps. Um, this time it is the song of the birds. Um, and again, as they told their story, so these two birds, the demons, sing together, um, answering one another's song. And they uh, skim down in a dance as well. First pan in uh, the form of a, a dove-like bird, but a darker color. Uh, and then Will's demon. And we see from Will's perspective what it's like to see his demon for the first time. The description is related to the heart. He feels it tighten and release. And very interestingly, we're told that 60 years and more towards the end of his life, as an old man, he will still retain the memory of some sensations just as bright and vivid as ever. Lyra's fingers handing the red fruit to his mouth, uh, their kisses, the feeling of his demon being torn away, and this feeling of her coming back to him. And again, it's very tempting here to see Will as in some way closer to the narrator of this story. And of course, that narrator is in some way very close to Pullman himself. So there's perhaps an autobiographical sense of reminiscence here of Pullman's own youth. But uh, Serafina is evoked here, although not present. Um, and the way that Pan begins this conversation, talking about the gypsums arriving, the tone of his voice, lets Lyra know that he's not happy about whatever it is that they have learned. This should be, of course, a joyous moment. They're reuniting. Um, and finally, uh, in the form of a cat now, uh, the new demon uh, tells her name, Kiryava, in the course of telling them what they learned about their witch-like natures now, Pan asks for forgiveness. And this again takes Lyra aback. When has he ever needed forgiving? Um, but something that they've learned about dust, something that this part of their nature, that witch-like nature, is going to reveal to them, which they don't yet know. Again, we see this will uh, discovering this part of himself. Um, and this sense that he can know something and not know it at the same time. Um, this is the stage for the reveal of this intriguing information that has been withheld from us for the chapter past, that every time they have opened a window, there has been a flow of dust out of the worlds and into that emptiness beyond. These windows that were never closed, of course, have allowed that flow to continue all this time. And there are thousands of them. Now, the description takes on the quality of an epic simile here. To go back to Pindar and the Greeks again. Um, of course, Homer preceding him. Um, and... Uh, their understanding of what this implies is described like the dawn, the gray light that extinguishes the stars. 
because the upshot is that every opening made by the life, every window between the worlds must be closed in order to keep the dust from leaking out. So the choice before them is to leave their own world in order to stay with the other. They have no other choice. And that is the bleak daylight they've been resisting. So Lyra lets loose with a passionate wail compared directly explicitly here to Pantalaemon's owl cry, but also, of course, taking us back to her realization of her separation from Roger back at the start of the Golden Compass or near the start of it. Um, here she is still physically with Will, but knows that she will have to be separated either from him or from her own world forever. But that's not all. The rest of the truth is possessed by Will and Lyra. It relates to what John Perry's ghost said, and Will tries to arrest Lyra's grief, and she clings to him. Um, all he can hear is the word no, but he asks her to remember exactly what he said because there might be a loophole yet. There might be a way through this dilemma. Um, their demons come to be held and to give comfort here. And so he touches his demon for the first time. Um, much as John Perry talked about the wonder of seeing and getting to know his own demon. Um, and they recall his words that people could spend a little time in worlds other than their own, but in his own person, he showed that 10 years might be the limit there because he was dying or nearly. As for Lord Boreal, Sir Charles, who could go back and forth between worlds, evidently he was able to maintain his health in that way. But of course, that will not be an option for them. He must have had some secret window, they say, but all windows, secret or known to them, must be closed. This, again, uh, prompts Lyra to question if there might be some way out. They say an angel told them. That's how they know and told them other things as well. But Lyra questions that authority, says she never heard of a female angel. Maybe they were lying. Um, Will supposes that they could make a window when they needed to, but not leave it open very long. Uh, and that way they could travel back and forth safely. But this is yet another piece of the puzzle fitting together because the demons now say, no, it's not possible because of the specters. They recall seeing them during that final battle they learned where the specters come from. And this is, in some ways, the worst of all. Because every time a window is made, the specters flow out of that emptiness beyond all worlds, like the children of the abyss. Now, you might think of them as a kind of anti-dust here, um, as each elementary particle has its antimatter 
the specters are a kind of anti-dust. Um, they conjecture uh, that Chirigatsi had so many specters in it because of all the windows that were left open there as the crossroads between worlds. Um, and knowing that specters feed on demons uh, and that demons and dust are somehow related or similar, at least grown-ups are, suggests uh, that the specters are in some way related to the consuming or the uh, disappearance of the dust caused by these open windows. They feed on the connection between humans and dust, grown-ups and dust, and they grow stronger as they do. That part of the human which is represented by the demon in Lyra's world. Now, this is what Yorick was trying to tell Will, he realizes, that every time he opened the window with the knife, the knife was doing something else on its own. It was opening that way into the nothingness beyond the worlds, the abyss. That was the knife's intention. So the choice before them remains and is harder than ever. One of them will have to, and he trails off. And then he says, I'll come to your world. Um, but Lyra knows that he's thinking of his mother and having to abandon her, thinking of the few years they'll have together, and knows that he wouldn't be able to live with himself. And uh, she, in turn, volunteers her in Pan to go and live in Will's world, saying that there must be doctors there who can help. Dr. Malone would know. And they, um, again, uh, see one another's um, feelings very clearly here because Will, just as Lyra had a moment ago, uh, turns the conversation around, asking rhetorically how uh, how she could um, imagine that he would live on after she died. Uh, he evokes here very, in a grown-up way, um, the 10 years before them, at most, uh, really being nothing, a flash, that they'll be in their 20s, grown up and just prepared uh, to do all the things they wanted to do. He says that when she dies, he would follow her just like she followed Roger. And again, there's a Greek myth behind this, the Orpheus myth. Uh, their two lives would be wasted then, and they need to live those lives uh, well, um, and so they must live them apart. So more of what his father said, that they'd have to build the Republic of Heaven where they are, because for them there's no elsewhere. And Pullman has said the same in a number of essays and lectures. They fully understand now what he meant by that, and that he was speaking about them, not just about Azriel and his world, but about Will and Lyra themselves. And their us is also our us, of course. The reader is clearly implicated here. Um, and the epigraph from Pindar again makes that uh, abundantly clear that um, we must say to our soul, to our demon, not to seek eternal life, 
but to exhaust the realm of the possible, that is to lead a good and busy life, as Will puts it here, where we are. The physical world, the, the natural world. Now, Lyra is determined to ask the alethiometer. Now they've run out of other options. She doesn't know why she didn't think of it before, and the reader might be wondering too why they didn't simply ask the alethiometer where their demons were or how to get them back. But the alethiometer has been curiously absent from the story for a while now. So she takes it from his rucksack, which is always with her. And again, as Will thinks of her in later years, he'll remember that. And the movement of uh, reading it, the tucking of the hair behind her ears that he loves. And he asks her if she can see it, but of course she knows it by heart. And this is what Pullman says about learning poetry. So he watches her uh, reclining on an arm as the moonlight off of the sand and its radiance draws out some other radiance in her. So she has a kind of angelic beauty in this moment and he would have fallen in love again. Um, but there's an awkwardness. For the first time, she can't read the alethiometer. She can't seem to see what it means. And I think this is a direct reference to that uh, piece by Kleist on the marionette theater, where what had come naturally is rendered awkward by self-awareness, by the quality of the intention, in that case of a dancer, and in this case, of course, of Lyra and her reading. Uh, mouse form pantalimon, just like when they were first learning about the alethiometer, peers close and she turns the wheels, but uh, in bewilderment and stricken, she realizes that she can't do it anymore. So Will using the same language, really, that Lyra had taught him when he was learning to use the knife. He tells her to be calm, not to force anything, but to float down and just touch the meanings. But she is too tense, exactly as he was after losing his fingers. For her, those invisible ladders of meaning simply are gone. They weren't there. They're gone forever, she says. She thinks they must have come when they needed to rescue Lot, uh, Roger, and they trail off again here, but for us to, well, we could finish that sentence with let out the ghosts, or leave their demons behind, or uh, learn from Mary uh, what it feels like to be in love, and then experience it for themselves, um, or even to let the authority out of his crystal casket. Um, all of these contribute, of course, to reversing the flow of dust, which in some way must have been behind her reading of the alethiometer all along. Um, there is no comfort in this realization, though. Um, and the angel herself finally appears. That light wings, that dust in human form. Zephania is still surprising to them, despite all the preparation we've gotten. Um, and despite Will's experience with um, Othamos and Baruch, she 
shines with the light of another world. She's unclothed, but of course, that doesn't matter. In some way, this is a reversal of the consequences of what we see in the story of the fall in Genesis 3. Uh, she is like the witches in that it is impossible to tell her age, and very unlike the Ancient of Days, the authority in that way. She has an expression of austere compassion, a wise teacher, and they feel that she knows them to their hearts, although this inspires less terror in them than it did in Mrs. Coulter when Metatron was uh, so close to her. Now, she asks for their help, Will's help in particular, and this is surprising, but it becomes clear that she is going to close all of the remaining windows. Um, so she needs to know how to do that. In return, he would like help out of their uh, dilemma here, but she cannot offer that. And this is where we hear about the fates, simply that there are fates that even the most powerful have to submit to. So these are beyond even the angelic powers and the power of dust. She refers also to beings who wish that things could be otherwise for them. Um, and angels or beings in other worlds um, might be implied here, but certainly also readers like ourselves. Um, their uh, question of her from Lyra then is why she can't read the alethiometer, how that gift has suddenly vanished. Now, it's not the only thing that Lyra can do well, and it's not the only one of her skills that seems to have vanished, because of course, her ability to tell stories has transformed from fanciful lying and fairy tale-ish approach to the telling of true stories. And then of course, her own great compassion is still very much with her, although it's also been changed, perhaps, by what she's undergone in the world of the dead, leaving Pan behind, and what she's experienced now in terms of romantic physical love with Will. So in the same way, Zephania says that her gift of reading the lithometer had come by grace but can be regained by work, a lifetime of study, and her reading then will be better than ever, it will be conscious understanding, and that such grace attained, as she puts it, is better than that given freely. So it's strongly implied here that she or some other angel has been responsible for Lyra being able to read the alethiometer and has now taken that gift back because thereby she enables Lyra to regain it by her own efforts. And the theology here is also quite interesting because this discussion of grace and work, of course, goes to the heart of the schism in the real world that took place within the Western church uh, between Catholics and Protestants um, around the time that in Lyra's world, Calvin became Pope. In our world, he was talking about prevenient grace uh, and predestination. Uh, Luther, of course, the other major figure there, I don't think is mentioned in the course of the story. Um, but 
Pullman's thoughts on this, anyhow, are uh, rendered in the form of wisdom rather than faith, per se. Um, he's interested in conscious understanding. That's what he is calling grace in this case, um, which is to mix the language even more and make it even more complicated than it is in, say, in Paul's letters to the Romans. Um, so this is just one of those things that would require uh, a longer discussion, perhaps just highlighting it. Um, and the ways that grace is used throughout the book are very interesting, of course. Uh, Serafina Pecola and Mrs. Coulter are just two of the characters whose grace is talked about in a physical sense. Now, the question remains, must all windows be closed? She goes on a bit of a sermon here. Zephania says, dust is not constant, but made and renewed as humans gain wisdom and pass it on. So our job, Will and Lyra's job, is to help the people of their worlds understand one another, be kind, be patient, be cheerful, and above all, be open and curious. So as to replace the dust that is left the world by one window. So Will immediately leaps to thinking that this means they could keep a window open between their worlds. They could grow up together, have children someday, and bring the learning from one world to the other. But he cannot do that. Lyra says that they can't because they need the window out of the world of the dead. That can be the only window left open, according to Safanya. Or anyway, implied by what she said. Now, we're told that Lyra felt young, as Will holds her, just what Mrs. Coulter felt when Azriel held her. Um, now, they think of the harpies, um, that if they do live such a life in their own worlds, on their own, from one another, they'll have something to tell the harpies, the true stories, um, and that though they'll have to do that alone, um, well, there is a kind of hope that the angel's expression holds. First, though, we get this long, epic simile again, a wave of rage and despair that Will feels at the word alone. He doesn't fully understand, perhaps, um, but his mind is the ocean. This blessing of Lyra has been taken away from him. The wave builds, falls on the iron-bound coast of what had to be fate. That's the root meaning of the uh, etymology there. And he feels helpless because those bleak rocks remain. Um, such rocks uh, we see in the Franklin's tale in Chaucer. Um, but it's probable that Pullman, again, has something more closely related to his own autobiography in mind here and his own experience of physical oceans and rocks uh, in love. So there's no arguing, those rocks will not be moved. And um, though the uh, waters are agitated, that great force of rage and despair has gone. The same kind of simile has been used at least a couple times before. Yorick's final blow in the mortal battle um, Mortal Kombat um, 
or is likened to a wave. Um, and the great tree that had, uh, that had Mary's platform in it, when it falls, similarly, described in the same way. Um, that cohort of images would be interesting to uh, compare and confer among themselves. But the note that the chapter ends on is one of hope, wisdom, seeing further, much as Serafina can see further, so the angel can as well. So Wild agrees to teach her how to close windows. She's a quick learner. He has to open one in order to do so, and it will make a specter, he says. He never knew. Um, but the angels say they will take care of the specters. Presumably they not only know where all the windows are, but have been keeping track of their children, those specters of the abyss. Um, to Will's surprise, his hands are steady, despite all this. And the window he cuts is onto his own world, onto a factory, which might well refer us back to one of those epigraphs at the very start of the book. Um, the angels, of course, don't know much about the knife, and surprising to him, but after all, it's a human invention, like this factory. Um, and all those windows must be closed except one. It's sort of promise, but conditional on that uh, agreement that's implied that Will and Lyra will teach others and help to make enough dust uh, to replenish that one window. The um, thousands of windows are not the only things that have to be closed, of course, because there's the abyss made by the bomb and the great opening made by Azriel out of his world. And presumably there are some that are smaller, but created in similarly dramatic ways other than the knife. Um, Baruch and Balthamus told Will about some of these windows that angels have used to pass through the worlds from one to another. His question is whether such uh, closures will render the angels confined as humans are to a single world. Now they have another way, she says, to get between worlds. He wants to know um, if it's possible to learn them. This is very much like Mary learning about how to see demons. Um, and she knows somehow that Will's own father already did. Um, this is what they might call imagination, but it is not making things up, but a kind of seeing. It's not pretend, um, but it is hard and true. And like reading the alethiometer, it will take long practice. Any great gift would be work uh, worth working for, she says. So again, this language of the free gift and the work. Um, so she refers here to Mary Malone as Will's friend, although he doesn't recognize or realize that that's who she's talking about. Um, as to seeing angels again, uh, she can't say for sure and tells them that they shouldn't spend their time waiting. Um, but uh, he is right that he will have to break the knife once he's back in his own world. So 
that factory that they're looking on this entire time um, is uh, described at some length here, the kind of realism. Um, the upshot is that this world, this world of work and effort and uh, creation, but not out of nothing, this is the world where he belongs. So he shows the angel how to feel for the edge, as Paradisi showed him. Uh, he does not pass on the knife, of course, but only the learning of how to close windows. And it's interesting, perhaps, that though Lyra has lost her power of reading the alethiometer in her newfound self-awareness, Will has not lost either the power of opening or closing windows, perhaps because it's something that he has already suffered and worked for. Um, there is, of course, the uh, question of the knife's own intentions here. If the alethiometer is guided by dust, perhaps the knife is in some way guided by its uh, antimatter, by the specters. So the uh, angels have their work cut out for them. Uh, they bid them not to spend their lives searching for windows and openings made by uh, processes other than the knife. Um, because that would be, again, a waste. And they have other work to do. Will tells her not to tell him what that work is because he wants to decide for himself. He cites fighting, healing, exploring as possibilities and points out that he would be resentful of being told and feel guilty if he knew and didn't do something. And so he needs to choose. And this gives her great joy just like when he said something similar to his father's ghost about choices he had already made. Uh, she, Zephania, tells him he's thus taken his first steps toward wisdom. And by that we seem to be understanding something that combines freedom and imagination. Although um, we're told, again, that that ship out at sea will be there by tomorrow, and that word, too, falls like a heavy blow. Um, Lyra can't believe she's reluctant to see the Egyptians and the witch. Their conversation ends with an embrace and a kiss. Um, and then Lyra realizes as the angel vanishes that she never asked about her parents and she can't ask the alethiometer now. The possibility that they're out there somewhere remains open. Um, and that journey to see her father started part of the plot of the first book. Um, and in some way, finding out about her parents perhaps will be a, uh, a motivation for her going forward. The tone again, though, lightens here. There is beautiful language that has sound and sense to it between the two as they think of what it means to kiss and lie down and wake up together, not just be a memory. Um, Will evokes her hair and mouth and eyes and hands and not knowing that he could love anything so much. He wishes the night would never end, that everything around them could fall into a sleep. 
and she wants them to be in love forever, even after dying there. Atoms would cling together in the birds, flowers and dragonflies, the pine trees, and clouds and specks of light you see in sunbeams. That image, of course, something Pan pointed out when they were learning to read the alethiometer. Um, that when they, whoever they is, use atoms to make new lives, they'll have to take two, one of hers and one of his. She remembers their first meeting in the cafe in Chitagatsi, how he didn't know what a demon was and thought it was so strange, but she says that uh, she liked him straight away. Um, or rather, <laughs> he says that she attacked him, um, but that he liked her from the first because she was brave. Um, and they, again, echo each other, not this time with the word no, but with the word yes, and trail off. There is one last change that happens now as their demons fly back down from birds, and if they were talking more with the angel, we don't hear about it. They become Pan, first, an animal, like a large ferret, red gold in color and full of grace, while Kiryava, a cat with glints and shades of various colors that would teach you the meaning of the word subtlety. And finally, Will arrives at the word for what he sees in Pan, the pine marten, like that da Vinci painting. Um, Lara can tell that Pan's not going to change anymore. Uh, she remembers now when she was younger, she didn't ever want him to stop, but she wouldn't mind now if he had settled. So with a new mood of resolution and peacefulness, knowing what he's doing, Will strokes Pantalainen's fur, and that breathless pleasure of putting the fruit to his lips is what Lyra feels again. And so she responds in kind, um, unable to speak. And so she can see that he's feeling what she was. That exchange of feeling, that perfect symmetry and sympathy between the two is the note that closes this chapter. The idea being that they wonder if lovers before them had made this blissful discovery. And the somewhat... Uh, cliche nature of their wishes here is surely not meant to be uh, held against them. The implication being that lovers have discovered such a thing uh, in Lyra's world anyway. The earth turns and the moon and stars blaze above this kind of cosmic connection and peace that Mary had been seeking, arrived at by the telling of true stories and forgiveness.